Hello, it's Kamal Ahmed here, and I'm here to tell you about Energized. The brand new podcast, Intelligent Squared, is launching in partnership with eBedrola. The climate crisis is the most pressing issue of our time. Temperatures are set to rise more than 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels in the next two decades, an increase that will cause irreversible damage to our planet. But is there still hope? If humans are to blame for climate change, then we must also provide the solutions. And that's where Energized comes in. Join me as I bring together experts and policymakers to delve deep into the key issues at the heart of the global drive towards net zero and the innovations that promise to accelerate the energy transition and transform the way we live. Just search Energized wherever you get your podcasts. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hello, podcast listeners. I'm Connor and welcome to this week's episode of Intelligence Squared. Today, we have a very special debate for you from our friends at Intelligence Squared Germany. Yes, they hosted a debate in partnership with the European Council of Foreign Relations on the question of whether the European Green Deal is fit for purpose. It was a really fascinating debate as Franziska Bratner of the German Green Party went up against climate activist Tadio Muller to debate questions like how radical or realistic climate policy should be. The debate was chaired by the BBC's Damien McGuinness, and we hope you enjoy it. How do we fight climate change? Well, if you ask the European Union, it's a new proposal called the Green Deal. A trillion euros to make the EU, make Europe, the first climate-neutral continent in the world, while boosting the economy. So what's not to like? According to critics, and he's one of them, quite a lot. Too little, too late, they say. And economic growth itself may indeed be the problem. So what we're going to talk about tonight, in other words, the debate is about what should we do? Should we reform the present system? Or is it time to take to the barricades and bring on the revolution? I'm Damien McGuinness from the BBC and joining me here in Berlin's Soho House with the windows open and in front of a small, select and socially distanced audience, we have a reformer. And we have a revolutionary. <laughs> Francisco Brandner is a member of the European Parliament no. and spokesperson for the European policy for the German Green Party. She also has a rather seedy past as a tango dancer in Buenos Aires, I was just finding out. <laughs> We're not going to go into that tonight. But she's at the heart of the beast within the EU, fighting the good fight within the establishment. So, Francisca, is it fair to say that you want to reform what we've already got? I want us to show that we can have a good life on this planet and keeping the planet alive. Sounds all right to me. Okay, so what does the Green Deal in one sentence mean to you personally? For me, it's an opportunity that we can change a lot and getting majorities in favor for it, for reforming our way of working, producing, living, uh, and making yeah, sure we do become climate neutral. Okay, well, I think Tadjo Müller might have one or two things to say about that, because on the other side of the argument, we have Tadjo Müller, who is a climate activist, works for the left-wing Rosa Luxemburg Foundation. He is less often to be found inside a parliament building, more like change the railings outside, I would say. Tadjo, same question to you. What does the EU Green Deal mean to you? Well, about as much as the story of the Jabberwocky. It's just a myth. It's a fairy tale. It's a fairy tale we tell ourselves 
to forget that California is burning, that will reach 1.5 degrees in a few years, and that 1 billion people will be affected by climate crisis in the next two decades. And that is meant to be covered up by a story about how we can continue a high growth, high production, high consumption lifestyle for everybody, which is literally absurd. So you're revolutionary. You want to bring everything crashing down. No, I want to speak about clear empirical data, which I will cite tonight, in order to prove that the only thing that's actually reduced emissions is reduced growth, as we saw during the corona lockdown. And I want to talk about how that can be made socially just. Everything else is balderdash. Okay, the fight is on between you two now. Uh, today, the motion we'll be debating is behind me here, the European Green Deal is not fit for purpose. Now, in a minute, I'm going to ask you to vote on this motion, and right at the end, I'm going to ask you to vote again and see if one of our eloquent speakers has won you over. There's also going to be a chance for you, the audience, to get involved. So I'd like you to prepare any questions, comments, anything you want to get off your chest, have a rant, we're here for you. As is now obvious, we're going to discuss this all from an environmental perspective. So this is not a debate about does climate change exist. Anyone's looking for that is in the wrong room and listening to the wrong That's podcast. That debate's next door, if you want to check over there. <laughs> so, first of all, I'd like to define what we're talking about. Francisca, yeah. this is too complicated for me, so you've got the job telling us what is the Green Deal in one sentence. In one sentence, the Green Deal is a, the proposal to reform our economic system, to make it socially just and make it viable on our planet. So it's a transformation of our economic system. That's the idea behind it. And then it's filled with proposals uh, that link to money, where do you invest, green tech, etc. You make laws, for example, circular economy, what are you allowed uh, to waste which products can you know can you repair etc as a detail and then you set targets and uh, have laws that oblige you to change so it's laws it's standards and it's money and the goal is to uh, transform our economies and it's a lot of investment in order to make economies work better work greener and you want to make everything more environmental and make boost the economy effectively create jobs through that, Is that no, right? I want the, if renewable energies to grow yes I want we need more of renewable energy so it needs to grow and we need less you know fossils there we need a decrease a degrowth but we need certainly areas where we need to grow okay well what I'd like to do then is to ask you to vote on the motion so those who support this motion I'd like to put up your hands that you agree the European Green Deal is not fit for pur purpose, there's a lot of negatives here, so it gets confusing, it means you, you think the EU's Green Deal is not the solution to climate change. Put your hand up if that's you. We've got six people out of about 40 who support the motion. You don't like the Green Deal. Okay, put your hand up if you are against the motion. And again, this is where I get confused with all the negatives, but it means you like the Green Deal. You think this is the answer. Put your hands up. 18, I think. Very ballpark figure, but definitely more. Okay, so, so far, Tadjo, you've got a fight on your hands here. Uh, so right. you've got, got the uh, Electoral College. So exactly. Right. You've, got to, you've got your work cut out. You're going to have to persuade this audience. Mm. But I think there are quite a few undecided. Put your hands up, because that's everyone else, isn't it? There's a good 20 yeah. people. Yeah. Okay, well, the majority are undecided. I already counted that. It's already fine. Okay, the strategy's right. already down. You know what you're doing. Okay, so, seeing as you are supporting the motion... And you're already on the losing side, so you can go first, <laughs> Look, Everybody who's been fighting for global justice and environmental protection has been on the losing side for the last 40 years. I'd just like to point that out. In fact, I'll start like this. The Green Deal is not fit for purpose because it simply isn't a strategy to protect the climate. It is three other things. It's first of all, as I said before, a fairy tale. A nice, comforting story that you can think about while you're watching California burn on the news right now. While last year in Berlin, you could smell smoke from forest fires in late April, right? In northern Germany, forest fires in late April, in spring. Um, you have the fact that 1.5 degrees, at which point hundreds of millions of people are going to lose their livelihood, are going to be reached in a few years, two degrees by the next decade possibly, and we'll have several billion people affected by the climate crisis. That the fact that this is an incredibly unjust phenomenon hasn't even been entered into this equation because those people who contribute most to climate change are the ones who suffer least from it, and those who suffer most are the ones who contribute least. The Green New Deal is first and foremost, the Green Deal, I always get that confused, the Green Deal is simply a fairy tale that 
tells us that we can have a win-win-win lifestyle, a win-win-win capitalism which has never existed. Somebody, the environment, women, indigenous people, workers, has always been screwed when capitalism has squeezed out more growth to distribute around the upper classes. Now, obviously the upper classes in this game are we in the global north. That's the second part of the fairy tale. It tells a story about how Europe will stay on top of the world, although the global dynamics are clearly shifting against the powers that used to be. So first, a fairy tale. Secondly, it's a set of targets. And ladies and gentlemen, if you believe that targets reduce emissions, I'd like to sell you some Enron stock. Because basically, if you remember Enron, that was probably a really old reference. Maybe like JP, <laughs> JP to, Morgan. You have to adapt your reference. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, know, I, re- I realize that. Uh, Volkswagen, maybe. I don't know. Um, but basically, the idea is that targets do not reduce emissions. The, exist, the, the history of all really existing climate policy is a history of irrelevance. If you track global emissions, nothing that's happened in the field that is kind of oddly enough called climate policy because climate policy has no effect on the actual climate. Nothing that was done in Copenhagen, in Kyoto, in Paris, has had any measurable impact whatsoever on reducing global emissions. So just remember that. Whenever somebody has talked about climate policy or climate politics in the last 30 years since the Rio summit, they've talked about something that has had no measurable material impact whatsoever. You could think, well, but they do talk a lot about money, right? There's a trillion trillion euros in there. Yeah, I remember in Copenhagen at the Climate Summit in 2009, Hillary Clinton promised, what was it, $100 billion a year. That was a nice promise, right? A nice $100 billion a year in terms of climate, just funny. Do you think those $100 billion have materialized? If so, what am I selling now? Am I selling JP, JP Morgan stock? Some stock of a company that no longer exists. Basically, I can sell you whatever. I, you cannot buy targets. Targets do not re- reduce emissions, and they do not put money on the table. They're just storytelling. Take carbon neutrality, for example. Carbon neutrality is a mirage. Every country says we're going to be carbon neutral by 2050. Do you know that that doesn't work? That's like every country in the world saying you should be an exporter. Oh, wait, we do live in the country that says that. Right, the Germans' economic success is based on the assumption that everybody can be an exporter. That's like literally materially not possible. Not everybody can can be carbon neutral because that means some countries have to actually go negative carbon. And I want to see how that works with a justice perspective. Um, And lastly, to propose in a world that is literally burning now. Carbon neutrality by 2050 is something that friends of mine that I work with, that I have worked with in the climate justice movement from the Philippines, if it were funny, they would laugh at it, but mostly they just shout in your face saying, stop destroying our planet. 2050 targets are just bullshit. Nobody gives a flying f- about 2050 targets, but I work with people every day who are asking us, why do you still mine lignite? Why is Germany world leader in digging up the world's dirtiest fossil fuel and wants to continue digging that up until 2038? Now, that's detour dissing Germany, not the EU. But basically, carbon neutrality is a mirage. 2050 targets are irrelevant and targets in themselves don't reduce emissions. I can tell you something that has reduced emissions in the past 40 years, and that is reductions in real economic growth. When the Eastern Bloc growth economies collapsed, that's when you saw a reduction in economic growth. 2008, 2009, height of the financial crisis, that's when you saw a flatlining of global emissions. And, of course, during the corona lockdown, emissions went down on an annualized basis by about 8%, at the high point by 17%. Now, I suppose Francisca will tell us that green growth is possible, that this has been the case so far. Yes, so far, capitalist growth has always correlated perfectly with global emissions and thus with environmental destruction and environmental injustice. She'd probably say that from now on we can have green growth, but there is no evidence empirically, nor is there argument theoretically, that such green growth, that such decoupling economic growth from material throughput and thus environmental destruction is possible. So green growth is a fairy tale. I can tell you that empirically one thing and one thing only ever has reduced global greenhouse gas emissions, and that is reductions in economic growth. Now those have normally proceeded chaotically in recessions, but the corona lockdown showed us that capitalism actually has a pause button. Now I will admit that the corona world sucks. I mean, I'm gay and I'd really like to go out and party in Bergheim and wherever, and it's closed, but nonetheless, Sorry, I got sidetracked by thinking about that. <laughs> that, was, that was a Who bad reference. Again, I really, my, my references are not good tonight. But basically, 
The point is, the corona lockdown showed us that capitalism has a pause button. The political challenge now is to make this work in a just way. But what I can definitely tell you is that the Green Deal will neither reduce emissions nor deliver climate justice through financing. It will, however, allow us to continue our fundamentally unjust lifestyle on the backs of other people while believing that we're doing that to save the planet. And therefore, it is not fit for purpose. Thank you, Tatio. Very good. That was uh, an impassioned argument. So, Francisca, give us the case for reforming the system. Take on the revolutionary. Yes, thank you. Um, first, I want to start by putting the challenge really in the center of the room. So the challenge is to achieve the Paris goals, at least, if not better, and to achieve it worldwide, and to achieve it in a way that there is justice. So if we look at the current situation, we still have many, many people on this planet who long for having electricity, having warm water, who are having access to education, having access to a decent living standard. We have the current output of CO2. Germany counts for 2% of worldwide CO2 emissions, 2%. We have a high per capita, but all over it's 2%. So what's the, and among the 10 largest emitters, Germany is the only one among them with the 2% and then come the other European countries. So what's for us Europeans the, the task and the duty we have to fulfill? We have to show, invest, and make financially possible to find a way that we can have a well-being as citizens that fits the planet. Because to develop that is costly. To have the green tech, to have the new technologies, to have it in a sustainable and social way needs a lot of investments, a lot of thinking, a lot of expertise. And if you talk about who can and should and must finance it, I think it's up to us. We must do it. We have to prove that we can have a good living standard that fits on this planet. It's our duty. And the Green Deal has this as the target, to decouple our economic standard from the use of the resources we have on this planet. And the Green Deal is much more than targets. Targets don't come from the Green Deal. Targets come from, come from the Paris Climate Agreement. I'm all in favor of Paris Climate Agreement. You are not, but I'm in favor of those targets. So the, it's not fair to say the Green Deal are the targets. The targets are there, and the Green Deal is a way to achieve them. So we have to deliver new targets now as the EU for the Paris Agreement, you know the debate about 2030 reduction goals, and I'm all in favor of you know 65%. Will it be that? Probably not, but you know that's a debate. The target debate comes from Paris. The Green Deal has two main <coughs> avenues. The one is legislative, and the other one is financing, investments. The legislative one is very broad, from circular economy, to having another infrastructure from public transportation to energy um, to you know um, having green tech etc. Uh, so that, and the legislative one is a very strict one. For example, the proposals on circular economy that products that you buy are no longer allowed to have a, a set in I broke I I will break date. You know when you buy a cell phone two years afterwards it's gone. Um, because they're built in a way to, to die. Obsolescence. So, yeah. so, you know, these are the laws that are behind the Green Deal. So that's the first point. What's the challenge? The second point I want to make is that, of course, the proposals will be turned into laws by the member states and the European Parliament. And I will fight for the higher standards. Will we get the higher standards? I'm not sure. But I think it's an opportunity if we all fight for it, to get high standards. So for me, the Green Deal is that opportunity. It's not sure we will get to good standards. There are many laggards, and our country here, our government is one of them, blocking very ambitious regulation. 
And the mm. third point I want to make is that if we want to get faster, I'm so happy about it. So yes, we would have fought for a much earlier uh, coal exit in Germany. Uh, of course, I'm like, I don't, I wouldn't say, oh no, it's wonderful that it's only 2038. No, of course we would have liked to have it earlier, but we need to have majorities for it. And if we want to win majorities for it, I have to take citizens with me. For me, it's about making sure that we get majorities behind it in the ballot box, you know, so in the ballot box, sorry. Um, and we have to make sure that the transition takes citizens on board. If we lose them, we will not win for the climate and we will lose out on democracy. And for me, that democracy factor is a very <coughs> important one because we have a very fragile situation of our democracies in Europe, in the Western world, very fragile. Um, and I take that serious. I want to achieve climate neutrality by also saving democracy. And that means taking people on board, making sure we have a transition that is fair and socially just. And yes, it might take a few days longer, but it saves our democracy. Thank you very much. So I think you've both, you've both argued your points very well. And I think you've both proven your personality as well. I found out when we were chatting earlier, they were both at university in Britain. Oxford is our pragmatist, part of the establishment, Francisca. And you were having a good time in the gay, the gay bars in Brighton, weren't you, Tatio? So <laughs> I was. I was also studying political science. I mean, I, just, Fine. You know, there, there was, I wanted to say something about democracy as well. Well, <laughs> <laughs> so I'd like to drill down a bit into what yeah. you both said. So, Tatio, you said you cited the economic crisis and the Corona crisis no. as a solution to. No, now, I, surely, cited it, surely, I cited it as evidence of uh, the fact yeah. that reducing economic <clears throat> throughput that is to say, not having growth, can lead to less, fewer emissions. Okay, so we've seen during the corona crisis and in the financial crisis that the people who get hit hardest when the economy yeah. shrinks are the poorest. Yes. Now, surely that goes against what you actually no. want. First of all, the people who get hardest hit by almost everything are the poorest. A pandemic screws whom? Poor people, um, BMEs, or black minority and ethnic communities um, around the world. Environmental problems, who suffers most? Poor and marginalised people. Like generally speaking, that is the world we that is the world we live in. We live in a highly unjust world, and climate change is one of the most unjust phenomena you can think of. Where we in the global north have built our wealth, our standard of living, and our democracy precisely on destroying the political systems, the wealth, and the standard of living of folks around the world. The classic example being, of course, the UK uh, and and India, uh, the British Empire and India. Um, uh, so. That's actually the point where I want to pick up on, and that's to start calling into question what I call our methodological nationalism. Now, I'm accusing, accusing nobody of being a nationalist here. However, methodological nationalism means that we can say sentences like, we cannot sacrifice societal stability here to the cause of protecting the climate. What that statement actually implies is that we are valuing our societal stability higher than that Elsewhere, the sociologist Stefan Lessenich argued very well that we are an so-called externalization society, that the negative effects of our wealth, of our standard of living, are externalized onto others. Now, what would happen if everybody who was affected by German lignite production and criminal German car production, which, footnote, goes very well in Länder governed by the Green Party, just as a mild sort of little diss on the side, um, now, if all those affected by the negative, if, if all those suffering the negative effects of German lignite production and German criminal car production got to vote in German elections, which would, as a sort of democracy theoretical point, be appropriate, what would these votes look like? What would these elections look like? So when we talk about democracy here, saving democracy here, now that's a laudable goal, and I don't want to be murdered by fascists on the streets, so let's agree that we are in a serious situation. I don't want to talk this down. I do want to call into question what really is our methodological nationalism, whereby we value our own stability higher than that in other countries. Because if we do not 
shut down our Lignite production tomorrow. We are accepting that other folks elsewhere will suffer more. And so you did point that out about the sort of 2% degree, two of emissions. Please factor in historical responsibility because it's not just 2% right now. It was a lot more. Let me, take in, uh, let me bring in Francisco into this. You know, I fundamentally believe that we will only get to a climate-neutral society in a democratic way. And only if we get majorities behind it to participate in it. I really believe that we need to convince citizens that this is, and make it a bright future where they want to go. Um, and it's not only by fear, it's not only by saying, you know, this is what's happening and you're all going to die, but it's by showing, imagine how a city looks like without cars. Imagine how beautiful this all could be and make it a bright future where people want to go. And we, if we don't take citizens with us, we will not reach climate neutrality. I'm very much convinced by this. Second point, you say, you know, look, we have corona, and actually it's not too terrible. I can tell you I that, that we can sit together and we are not yet in the most terrible economic recession and crisis with high unemployment rates is because the German taxpayer is taking up a lot of debt for the next generations. We can't finance this for very, very long. We can finance it a year, two years, but damn, afterwards it's going to be impossible to finance it. And I'm glad we're doing this right now. It's perfectly fine that the state is investing that much and taking up such debt, but it's not sustainable, talking about sustainability. So this corona economic crash is nothing that I would like to see prolonged because it's not sustainable. But from, the perspective of, from the perspective of reducing emissions, let me say, so from the perspective of reducing emissions, it is the only thing, the corona lockdown, is the only thing that has actually measurably and in a climate-relevant way reduced emissions. Now, if we agree that the goal is to not have the climate tip over into an unstable state, the global climate is a complex system, complex systems have two states, stable and unstable. Once the climate system tilts from a stable and unstable state, it can remain there for an indefinite period of time. Now, that would basically mean that the outcome of the climate system tipping at which the likelihood of, for which rises beyond 50%, beyond two degrees of warming, that's a catastrophic outcome, much worse than Germany being governed by a bunch of fascists. Now, I would hate Germany being governed by fascists, but we have to do everything to prevent the climate from tipping. That has got to be our global justice priority. So, Francisca, hasn't Tadjo got a point in that two, 2050, climate neutrality by then, is too little too late? Oh, I said that I, I have much more ambitious and higher climate targets, totally. But I just said that the climate target debate is actually decoupled. It's not the Green Deal debate. The climate target debate is the one of the Paris uh, Agreement. Um, so you, we can also have an, a debate on we don't like the Paris Agreement. Uh, I, we can, it's a different said, debate. But, um, um, so, you know, I, I just think it should, okay, well, we should be fair back. what we're debating. Uh, fair enough. But let's get back to the idea um, then economic growth, because can yeah, you have exactly. economic Economic growth, yeah. yeah. Can you have economic growth without causing higher emissions? And totally, it all depends on how you define economic growth. So that's like the point. And by the way, before I go into how we define it, I wouldn't call people who work for car manufacturer criminals, even if I don't like the policy of the car manufacturers. I don't. I still think that they are citizens. And if I want to take them along on the transformation path, I better don't call them criminals. Um, so, no, it's just like the way uh, I think we, you know, we should go about. Um, second point, can we do this with economic growth? It depends all on how you define economic growth. If we go by the current standards, how we define economic growth, no. Because we, all the externalities, if you pollute, it counts positive towards economic growth of your nation state. It's completely absurd the way we define and measure economic growth. So we need to redefine it. We as Greens, we have uh, in the group, in the Bundestag, we have now published um, the third time in a row the German well-being report by taking very different measures for, yeah, for well-being. It's social, um, by the way, it has quite a number of criteria on the social side, on the environmental side, on the climate side. It's also on biodiversity. It's much more than just climate. So a new holistic, holistic approach and how do we define you know, economic growth? And for me, that's what we, where we need to get, to say we have areas in our society that I would like to see to grow. I would like, for example, caretakers 
to have more time with elder people. I want to see that time grow and to have that in a statistic to can be ask, measured. Can I ask you a question? Do you think that capitalism grows because an economist in 1947 invented the concept of the GDP? No. Capitalism has an inbuilt growth dynamic which is entirely independent of how you or the Kingdom of Bhutan decide to measure it because they've got the Gross National Happiness Index. Capitalism has an inbuilt growth dynamic. Uh, an entrepreneur gets up in the morning, has money to invest in order to make more money by selling the products she produced tomorrow. Right. Now, that is how capitalism grows. It's a microeconomic process which has macroeconomic outcomes. But, but the, the, the measurement and index... Uh, debate is such a red herring so that I got, s- that, 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 that I got slightly and that I got slightly briefly annoyed when you said so it's about how we measure it. It is not no. how we measure so it. So what's Economic- your problem with you going out and telling stories to children and doing more Wait a second. I was, I was first of all pointing out that the argument that it is about how we measure economic growth is not quite, well, it's not quite playing honest because capitalism grows whether or not we speak about it as GNP, GDP, or gross national happiness. So the index debate is irrelevant, a red herring. So, Let's put that so aside. Tach, I have one very concrete question for you. I yeah. know what you don't like, yeah. i.e. this whole system we live in. What, what's your proposal? Because I've criticized Francisca's proposal. I've tried to question that a bit. What do you propose? Now, I know that basically degrowth or post-vaxtum or decroissance is an incredibly hard sell. It does have one advantage. The advantage that it picks up on the one empirical truth that only less growth, which is not about indices, but about total material throughput in the economy, if you have less of that, you have less environmental destruction. Right, so less chance of the climate tipping over into an unstable state. The kids, the Fridays for Future kids, they actually gave us something to talk about that I think is quite interesting. They, call, they talked about a future again. Now, I want to fill that future with meaning, but what, a meaning that is not based on material consumption. Economic growth is MCM prime. It's money invested in the production of commodities to make more money. Could we have some degree of like conceptual clarity here? If you I'm have saying, no clarity if you say only thing that is for you economic growth is material. I'm like, we have so many services, all of this, no, you no, no, discount no, no, it from ma- economy? Ma- I'm like, I, what? I didn't you see material. right I definition of economy bit of growth, it's only e- material. Come every on. bit of growth, economic if you track <laughs> global economic growth definition. and also in the service sector, the service sector has a material underbelly that we don't see. 2009 and 8 and 9, there was first Folks like you talking about how amazingly immaterial the internet was. Then we looked at um, the internet's economic uh, material underbelly and suddenly realized, holy shit, the electricity has got to come from somewhere. The server farms have to be somewhere. All these stories, green growth, decoupling, immateriality, gross national happiness, they have been told for 15 years. And I can tell you, if you look at the development of global emissions, none of them has had an iota of influence on them. Therefore, I believe that it is our, ch- our challenge is not to convince everybody that we can have a great material standard of living in this world or at the same time it is to talk about how in the global north we have a historical responsibility that we have been failing we've been failing folks around the world we've been living a life on their backs and we do not seem to so be ready to we stop failed it. in the past we're not allowed to do better in the future so Damn francisca i want to i want exactly come on seriously i'm like that argument because we were so terrible in the bad in the past we're not allowed to make it better now no, no, because like, you have no claim you have no argument how you think for example that if you increase efficiency then you can reduce material throughput. Yeah. But every time in the history of capitalism efficiency was increased, more production happened. The expansion of service yeah. sectors in the global north in the past decades has not gone along so, with the reduction of material Tadjou. throughput. I'm, I want to bring yeah. Francisco in a bit more because I've got a few more questions and then I'm going to open up to the audience. So I will take your comments and your questions and your rants as well. So, emissions have been going down, even if they have not been going, like not in Germany, but like, you know, it's the problem is that we have not been fast enough I totally agree. Could we go faster? Yes, hopefully we will get other majorities. And do we still will do we will need energy in the future? Do you will not go back to a life where you have no energy, no electricity? So the question is, can we produce it more in a green way? More. Okay? More. So in a way where ev- already if all of us want to use only green lights, not, not even going to fly somewhere for a holiday, just having your light bulb going on every night and having a warm shower the next morning, just the basics. For that, in Germany, we need more renewables. Already that, we need more 
renewable energy for just keeping the very basic living standard that we have and having you know some fun going to a gay bar and whatever you also need some standard energy whatever for it for keeping you that fun we need growth in one sector namely renewable energies okay so i want to get there faster and i'm the one fighting every, you know in my region where i come from heidelberg we have the odenwald okay so i'm fighting for every single windmill it's like hours of my life spending with people locally convincing them that this is not the end of the world it's not the end of the abendland and that we will survive even if there's a windmill okay so that's my daily job and i tell you it's terribly difficult it's, you know, it's nice to sit here in Berlin, have this funny chat and talk about, let's all be degrowth, you know, and let's all do this. Let's go to the Odenwald and talk to the person to put a second windmill there, okay? And then you go and convince him I'm happy. And we can all do this and then we're all going to be faster, okay? So I just want to make this concrete and real what we're talking about. And we can make this faster, we can make this better, but it's not that easy. And I tell you, it's really, that's where it's going to happen, where we have to change it. It's those local communities where we need to get the change. I have to go to uh, the Schwäbische Hüttenwerke, yeah? SWH by uns. They have been producing steel for the last, you know, 200 years. They have been producing gears and brakes for cars for the S-Klasse to Daimler. Terrible that they haven't changed earlier. They're trying to rethink what they're going to do next, okay? So there are 1,500 people employed there on the Schwäbische Alb who are worried about their next job. And I think, you know, let's invest to give their engineers a better job in new technologies and keeping their smart access, their minds, putting their expertise in something useful where we can have a better yeah, green technology. Devices. No. Okay, so rather than what? Rather than defeat devices, because they are, of course, a criminal concern. So I'm not going to get sidetracked by okay. cars or corona or sex parties, much as that would probably no, be I, a very interesting conversation. No, seriously, I don't like this point of saying that the Schwäbische Hüttenwerk is criminal. No, 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 you have no evidence no, 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 for so that. So listen, 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 the German car sector. You spoke about German engineering, which is just one of those comforting stories. German engineering in the last decades has been used to create a huge criminal conspiracy, which is the diesel scandal, where basically German cars can only be sold if you undercut legal standards, which would be the legal standards kind of set in the, in the Green Deal. Yeah. And that's exactly the reality of contemporary capitalism. It cannot be made clean. Okay, so I do have another concrete question for both of you. Just a quick one now before I open it up. We've been talking at an EU level. What can we all do individually? Just give me one quick idea. Uh, go join Endergelände or Extinction Rebellion and shut shit down because that really does reduce emissions. On an individual level, what can we do? What I really try to do is to uh, reduce my European traveling as much as possible not to airplanes. That's okay. my biggest... Uh, because I'm a European spokesperson, so it only works if I go into Italy from time to time to Greece, to other countries. Um, it doesn't work without going to see people. So I, by the way, I also want to go in the future and travel this world. I don't want to be confined to just live in Germany and never see my friends again abroad. Already for that, I need a growth of some alternative ways of traveling. I don't know who of you still wants to continue traveling in the future. I don't know. Maybe somebody. I want. And I tell you, I really want. I would love to go back to Buenos Aires and dance soon again, as soon as Corona allows. <laughs> and I would love to do this in a climate-neutral way. So there is where I want to put German engineer technology to make that possible. But that's a mirage. Do you really believe that yes. everybody in the world, all... All those people who haven't flown before, my, my, my husband, whom I almost, you know, lost in the last two weeks. Uh, not, he did die, I almost just broke up. Sorry, that's, we talked about that before. Hence my slight confusion. <laughs> that was the wrong way to read it. No, he, he comes from the East German working class, right? Northern East German. He's, he's basically flown two flights in his entire life. I've flown, I come from the global bourgeoisie. I've flown about 100 individual flights. Now... You and I should probably no longer be able to fly from a justice perspective, although you know, now, that's the thing, the justice perspective, the global justice perspective. Now, I recognize your perspective of saying we have to bring folks in Germany along is valid. I'm not an idiot. 
But I believe that the global perspective should also be accepted as valid, that if we assume that we can't tell folks in Germany or the UK that they will have a drastically reduced material standard of living, and if Germany or the UK or the EU don't start redistributing the, for example, 6% of annual GDP, which were calculated at the Alternative Cochabamba Climate Summit in 2010 as something that would start paying for ecological reparations, if we don't talk about these things, there will not be a global justice perspective in this, and then there will not be global climate justice. Okay, but so there won't be a global justice perspective if, if people in the South don't see that we can make it. And who will transform this? Who will invest in it? Do you think it will be people in Ghana who can afford it? I, you know, Certainly not be Germany. No, why not? So we, I think it seriously, if China, if the India, if we, I'm like, Chinese probably going to be ahead in green tech. That will be economic problem for us in Europe, frankly speaking. That's a t point we haven't even spoken about. For me, the Green Deal is also a way of Europeans keeping some way of, uh, you know... Global primacy. No. Domination. No. Imperialism. Global ability to have some economic <laughs> okay, standards. So, so for me, it's a question of global justice that we invest the money we have in our cheating. German fund. And I agree that we need to invest more on, on uh, adaptation, reparation, etc. Which the EU has done absolute shit on so far. But right, this is so a proposal to make it better. So why are you against it? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring the audience in now because we've only got half an hour. I'd like to hear your comments your questions, your thoughts. We have a roving, socially distanced, disinfectant mic <laughs> somewhere over there. Also yep, Ben at the back. Yep, disinfected between people. Don't touch the mic, obviously. So we've got <laughs> someone at the front here, please. So thank you very much. Um, I think you both made a whole bunch of excellent points. Um, my name is Michael. Um, I live in Berlin. Um, I very much support the idea of the Green Deal. Um, but there's something that you, Francisca, said how you responded to Tejo's point that like, we have these criminal car companies in Germany, right? And you turned that around and said, oh, he's calling the employees of the car companies criminals. To me, that is a very, very dangerous way of not taking responsibility for what the German car companies are doing. because. That is really, really criminal bad stuff, okay? And if you don't honestly see that, and if you can't tell all voters that, look, you, you know, you're from southern Germany, Daimler, BMW, Audi, etc., right? We have to make these people feel comfortable, but their employers, their car companies are corrupt. Thank you very much. We're going to take two more questions, and then we'll come back to you. There is someone over here at the back, the gentleman with the glasses there. Uh, yeah, so my question for the EU side. When you talk about the EU being carbon neutral by 2050, how much of that will come from actual impact reduction and how much of it will come from offsetting? And if you're using, and if you're using offsets, how are you going to make sure that it actually works? Okay. Mm -hmm. And the woman there at the back. Thank you. Um, I would really like to, so I'm Ramona, I'm also from Berlin. Um, I would really like to know what you both think about a carbon tax as opposed to a direct carbon tax as opposed to um, the offset kind of model that we're working with now and whether that might be an option. Okay, let's tackle those three questions. So we've got carbon tax and practicalities about how to go carbon neutral. And then, I don't think we're going to cars, but it was a fair point. And then a big question for you, Taggio. What do you propose? Let's go to you first. Well, um, I think the first problem is the time frame. It is absolutely conceivable, capitalism is a highly adaptive system, um, that there can be some kind of sustainable capitalism, except that there hasn't been any empirical evidence of that, including in the last 30, 40 years where folks have really tried. Given the incredibly short time frame we have to stop, especially given the now rising methane emissions in the atmosphere, which are tipping the climate more quickly into an unstable state. We've got about 10 years, which is by the way what we said 10 years ago, to s prevent the climate from tipping. It is extremely unlikely that in those 10 years, the kind of technologies that, that the Green Deal talks about, hydrogen and others, can be brought online in a general industrial, globally relevant way. So therefore, I can imagine all sorts of futures in which capitalism does all sorts of things, but not in the next 10 years. Because if you look at the trajectory of global climate politics, they've had no effects. And on changing technologies, they've had no effects on reducing the trajectory of emissions, which keeps going upward. So therefore, I know it's not an easy sell, 
but it is the only empirically realistic cell. I know it's not an attractive story, but it's the only story that actually meets empirical and quantitative realities. Now, question about the carbon tax. The carbon tax is certainly preferable as a policy tool to an extremely easily gameable um, emissions market on the one hand, and offsetting, which is just a postmodern form of selling indulgences. Now, the carbon tax is preferable because also as a policy mechanism, it is more well known and uh, state institutions can more easily manage it. However, the, I would say, in terms of the Königsweg, the main path towards emissions reductions are hard and fast rules that forbid certain kinds of productive processes, certain types of engines, for example, phase-out laws. Not Basically, think of it as human rights. You don't say the, your right to remain sort of physically whole can be sold off and bartered, like I can sell you my hand for a bit. If you like, No, you have a right for your body to remain whole. Körperliche Unversehrtheit, I can't translate that around. Now, that it's a little bit like we have, the way we see climate laws. They have to be hard and fast and the people who break them have to go to jail. That's basically what has to happen. So I'm not interested in the difference between emissions trading and carbon tax. I want hard and fast laws that say this shit is no longer on. Francisco. Um, I start from the back on the carbon tax. We are for minimum carbon tax, but then I agree actually on this point with Tadjo that for most areas we need rules and no price. Yeah. Because whenever you have a price, it hits the poorest hardest. Um, so we prefer, for example, you know, we had this discussion on the price of meat to say it needs to, and Glöckner said it needs to become more expensive and whatever. And we just said, no, you have to outrule the way they, you know, the Stallhaltung, the, um, mm, standards. the, the, the uh, standards where uh, the pigs, how the yeah. pigs live. I don't know, it sounds <laughs> terrible. Pigs are housed. <laughs> 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 ah. pig Anim animal welfare <laughs> standards. For pigs. The animal welfare standards. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, it's very technical. Um, you know, so you mm. can have to rule out certain activities. It's also with the CFC, CFC. exactly. So you didn't <laughs> give them a price, but you did out, you know, you said just no more. So, and I think there are many, pro like glyphosate, you know, we have many things where there has just to be zero uh, and no pricing. Uh, so pricing as a tool, yes, but really measure it and where you don't have a legislative tool. Our preferred option is always legislative and then over a price. Um, so on this one, we agree. See. I know, I'm impressed. Oh. I'm, I'm sitting here like baffled. <laughs> <laughs> so let's have um, some more comments, questions from no, the audience. Oh, did you have some? No, uh, sorry, that was the carbon tax question. Sorry. Okay, go on. The second on the how much offsetting, that's under debate. Uh, we have on national levels, we have, uh, for example, Sweden has a very ambitious plan on uh, going carbon neutral already by 2040. So they have a national plan, 2040. I think they have 20% offsetting. Um, so where we have more ambitious plans, we see better already. We're in Germany, we don't even have that ambitious plan yet, so we don't even have the debate yet about how much will we do offsetting. Um, so it's still on a debate. We fight for as little offsetting as possible but it's uh, not fixed yet. And you have now Ireland that is quite ambitious with quite little offsetting. Um, so it's always a national debate how much uh, in a you know, coalition negotiation uh, the Greens negotiate for as little offsetting as possible in Ireland and in Sweden, for example. Um, and on the criminal side, you know, I think, yes, you had criminal leaders who had completely crude systems with engineers helping them to, uh, you know, cheat, to cheat and to uh, deceit customers, uh, policymakers, everybody. Uh, and I still know that uh, if I go and talk to their employees and I say the companies are criminal, they feel that they are concerned. Seriously. If I say Daimler is a criminal company, for the worker there, I'm sorry if I say it, for them it sounds like I'm, criminal, I'm a criminal. And I wanted to make that point that we have to, you know, I'm very happy to say Tetra is a, you know, is a criminal and probably he will go to jail for that in one way or pay for it or whatever. The, those leaders who were responsible for it, there are court cases now and they are criminals. I totally agree. And so I you're say talking that specifically now about emissions 
diesel emission scandal. The diesel scandal. But the I, but diesel then I, but then scandal is question. a criminal offense. And there's this, so, but I, my, where I want to be precise is that I say these leaders have been criminal and all those doing it in their com companies have been criminal. Yeah, but and I just want to, lead, to show the fact that if I say the entire company, all of them are criminal, what it makes on those people working there. It, them, it feels that they are de designated as criminals. And it doesn't help in the transformation. I want to hear more from you guys in the audience. Um, I think the gentleman there had a point, the lady at the back... And then I think you had a point earlier you wanted to say, if you'd like to bring that up. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm Christian from Berlin. My, my question is one to Tajub. So I, I hear everything you're saying, but fascist regimes don't um, do good climate policy either. So what's your suggestion? Definitely not fascism, but I'll get okay. to that. Yeah. 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 We'll have two more. Uh, the lady there in the middle. Yeah, Trump is a good example of uh, good climate protection law by populists. Um, thank you. Jennifer from Berlin. Um, first, a question to Tatsio. I, I agree with you. The European Green Deal is currently a fairy tale, but then again, most political constructs are fairy tales. Money is a fairy tale, if, if, if not enough people believe in it. So... Ha but sometimes fairy tales are necessary. I work in diplomacy, and sometimes fairy tales are necessary. How would you sell degrowth to Japan, to South Korea, to India, to China? Um, and then a question. The European Green Deal is not fit for all purposes yet, and one of the weakest elements is the social dimension outside of the Just Transition Fund. How would you improve that, particularly if we're now hearing that they're considering expanding the ETS into buildings and efficiency, which, ha which would have huge social implications, particularly for energy access and affordability? Thank you. Great, great question. Uh, over here, lady at the bar. Very sensible position. Hi, I'm Sabina from Berlin. I have a question to maybe both of you. Like, what's the role of consumers? Because, I mean, for example, the fashion industry is hugely polluting, probably more so than transport, or I don't know the statistics on these things, but... I mean, flying is actually, it's bad, absolutely, but actually when you look at the overall emissions, uh, our transport is not even the worst offender, right? So, okay. Great questions, yes, thank you. So we have fascists, we have fairy tales, we have social <laughs> implications and consumers. Do you want to take on fascists? Well, um, well basically, now I'm, I'm a very outspoken gay communist, climate justice activist with a migrant mother. I'm pretty sure... I don't like the idea of fascism here at all. So I just want to point out that I'm not saying, no, it's all fine, let's just all go fascist, and then that's FD growth, and, and the world will be a just place. Like, I'm not an idiot. I am, however, pointing out that we might have to consider a certain amount of social disruption that we re-import into our countries and not just dump it onto other people's heads. Because, again, I know, like... I know it's an easier sell to say, guys, there'll be some nice technologies in the future, nobody here will vote for fascists, and the EU will sort it out, which is a little bit the story I'm hearing from Francisca. I'm telling you, guys, it's very, very late. We've waited far too late. We have to take drastic steps if we do not want to behave like assholes on a global scale. Those drastic steps may very well include some form of material disruptions of our lives that go beyond just a few weeks of, you know, not being able to fly. Something beyond might be necessary. Now, it seems to me that that's empirically a very realistic argument. My argument does not suffer from the flaw that Franciscas has, which is that the stuff, the policies that you talk about, you have no chance in the time that we have to save the climate, and you know that. But whereas my, my story has the problem that it is a hard political sell, which is precisely where we need political leadership. Now, I, uh, I co-created Endigalender. I'm not a member of Extinction Rebellion. Endigalender were the white-suited people who shut down um, coal pits. Um, but Extinction Rebellion makes one correct claim. That is, if governments cannot be swayed by societal, by large group, by large social movements, and by the way, we had a societal majority for a coal phase-out earlier than 2038, even among AFD supporters, even AFD supporters were for a coal phase-out earlier than 2038. But this political system delivered a coal phase-out in 2038 after we were protesting as a movement, we were throwing everything and the kitchen sink at the government. And RVE made that stupid mistake of trying to cut down that forest. 
Now, basically, we're in a situation where unless we decide, unless we decide to shut down this mega machine and accept collectively some of the negative effects that that will have, we will be destroying the world. Everything that's been said so far from the EU side stands in no realistic relationship to the re emissions reductions challenge that we face. And again, Francisca knows this. Everybody who reads the climate briefs that I read, everybody who reads the briefs about which industries can be brought online, uh, which technologies can be brought industrially on stream in the next 10, 15 years, knows that we will have to accept a significant amount of social disruption. Bam. That was not a mic drop. That was a pen <laughs> drop and totally uh, 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 not at the right moment. <laughs> Basically, um, that, that is my point. We will, find, we will have to find some ways as societies to accept the disruption we export into other societies. Now, that's a very hard sell, but the kind of like feel-good win-win-win-win-win-win-win stories that are here in the Green Deal, they are precisely going in the wrong direction. We're not having the political leadership that tells us, all right, our lives are going to have to change unless we want to change other lives for the worse elsewhere. And that's the political leadership I am not hearing, certainly not from the Green Party, not from the party that is close to my employer, the left party, nor from anyone. But that is the political leadership that folks in the Philippines and in Bolivia need from us. And it doesn't exist. And therefore, I keep banging on about this in this kind of irritatingly loud way, because I've been a climate activist for 12 years, and nothing has happened. And we've been talking about green technologies and green deals, green new deals for 12 years and nothing has happened. Shutting shit down has reduced emissions. We need to reduce emissions. Ergo, shit has to be shut down. Bam. <laughs> Take on that, Francisco. Take on, on that, yeah. Um, and then the question is um, I'm convinced that social disruption is not the atmosphere where you can have a good transformation. I really don't think that this is going to be the moment where you're going to get towards, I, you know, you have your beliefs, I have mine. Um, and this political system, which has led to 2038, is still the best political system that I know of. And in this political system, we need to get stronger majorities that will lead to earlier phase out. And I'm fighting for this every single day and trying to convince more voters and more people to say, let's get to a stricter course. And we're not just saying it's easy peasy and it's going to be fun. You know, how many times I've been standing in the street, veggie day, you know, boo, uh, look at you, you only want to destroy my lifestyle. I've been there. Don't tell me that we're only tell, saying it's nice and easy and it's not going to need any change. It's not what we're doing. So but that's what, what, change, what, what negative changes, that's the direct question, what negative changes will folks in Germany have to undergo and suffer in order to create, contribute to a climate just world? Please, we we will eat two or three. Give me two or three. We will all eat less meat. We will wow. all fly differently. And we will all... Fly differently, not even less. Jesus Christ. Come on, listen to it. If you can't even tell people Can that they're going to fly less, less, then you're not a okay, realistic... Can you, Can you maybe apologies, allow me to... Apologies. <laughs> apologies. <laughs> I think we will all live in different houses and we will have very different sorts of mobility and we will shop much less and recycle much more. And I'm sure that we will have um, changes when it comes to the way, you know, the mobility question for me is the most difficult one to get to in Germany, not in Europe. We have different traditions. The car in Germany is spe specific. Um, but I think the, um, in Europe, it's actually parts of this are easier. I, I had question on... Um, yeah, you had the social competences social and the housing. That's why I said earlier on the ETS, I'm really skeptical about enlarging it and making carbon price in more sectors and rather regulating it. Um, and the problem is that uh, the EU has very few competences in the social area. So in a way, much of what we want as a social dimension of the Green New Deal or Green Deal needs to come from a national level. And that's really the tricky part, because we don't have the competences really at the EU to do it. Um, and like I wish they were there and we had a treaty change and we could have the competences, but the fact that they're not there. So what we just have to make sure that from what comes from the European level does not negatively affect the social dimension. And that goes back to pricing uh, and not extending it to areas like housing, et cetera, where it's going to be really socially affecting people. 
Um, so that's where we're trying to avoid all the negative spillovers that some want and trying to establish, for example, the uh, energy citizens' income that we create is something that is almost impossible to do at the European level because, first of all, we don't tax and we don't pay taxes out on the European level. So in a way, we would have to organize it uh, on a national level but with a European mechanism. So there are ways around the no-competence part but it's much more difficult. So, Francisca, I'm going to draw you no, to a close. If you, have you got one sentence? Because I need to wrap up, and I want to hear from I the audience. I wanted to say something on the consumer's role. Very um, good point, but very quickly. Can you do it in 20 seconds? I think that consumers have a very important role because they're power players in the game, but I don't want to wait for people to become better citizens because that's certainly going to last too long for the climate change. So I don't think we need better people, but we need better policies. But I'm happy about every consumer changing her or his behavior. But waiting for better human beings is probably going to take even longer than waiting for a good Green Deal. I find another point we're in agreement too. Okay. We have two, two points we're in agreement on. Maybe we can find a third. Tango, well, I think Tango in Buenos Aires is fun. A good. lot. Okay, three Excellent. points. Three, three points. points. <laughs> very good, very good. Well, I, I do have a final question, which I yeah. want you to find agreement on. This one's compulsory. Yes. What do you like about the Green Deal? And you have to answer this. And what do you like about Taggio's position? And you have to give me an answer. I like the fact that it... I like... Let me say what I like about Francisca's position. Maybe rather than about the Green Deal, because I think the Green Deal is just a, just a story. Um, what I like about Francisca's position is that she says, if we don't find a way to make people appreciate, accept that this is going to happen, we have a massive problem on our hand. And I recognize that is the biggest weakness of my story. Therefore, if I find a way to integrate that fundamentally into my story, then our side will finally win, which is what has to happen. What do you like about Tadjio's position? The sense of urgency, uh, because I very much agree that we, you know, we need to have a much faster reaching of the goals and the transition. Um, and I think that sense of urgency is very correct, and I share that. Um, and I, to end on a positive note, because we've had so much negativity, um, I have been part of the Greens as a teenager, and then I left and lived abroad for you know more than ten years, and then came back. So sort of you know that's where the tango in Buenos Aires comes in. Um, but when I left Germany, we Greens just entered the government in '98, and I campaigned oh, in '98 well. for coal to leave the government. You know that was like coal and, oh, to get coal rid of government, and we we campaigned for getting out of nuclear, and we campaign for a 10% solar and wind energy percentage by 2020. And that was people were telling us, you're crazy, Francesca, this is just ridiculous, you will never get there. And it went much faster than all the experts had told us that we could get with the technology. And so sometimes I'm optimistic because on all of these areas, we have been much faster than we were told. So I'm, you know, this is when you say we have not achieved anything. On all of these areas, we have been faster Look than at global thought. emissions rates. I will send, a look at my Twitter account. I will retweet tomorrow, whatever it is today. There is no climate politics. We are rapidly going towards destruction and we need to shut it down. I was, I was trying to finish on note of consensus, but I almost got there. I want to hear from you, the audience, now. Uh, it's your time to vote. I want you to tell me who's been the most persuasive. So, who, put your hand up, if you support the motion, i.e., you were persuaded by what Tadjo was telling us, you don't like the Green Deal, you don't think it's a solution. Put your hands up. I think we might have slightly fewer people than... No, no, I got more. I, oh, you got, I, I, oh, you got I, some I, of the undecided. There were like 10 to 12. I had six at the beginning. <laughs> okay. Well, you had about eight at the beginning. <laughs> now you've got about nine. But yeah. You, yeah. Oh, well, we'll nine. say you had a slight increase. Okay. Who is persuaded by Francisca's position that we should go with the Green Deal, that it is the solution we should be looking for? Well, that's kind of everyone else, Tadju. I'm sorry. But your revolutionary <laughs> spirit was there. The passion was I, the, there. The only thing I disagree with is the counting. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's not I, my fault. I said we have the Electoral College. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, no, I think uh, one final question actually to you both. To what extent do we need both the pragmatic inside Parliament and the revolutionary tied to the railings outside? In every social movement, gay rights, votes for women, you've had both wings, haven't you? To what extent do we need that with environmental? Well, the, the Greens have always said that you can only fly with two wings. The problem is that you've clipped one of your wings. Um, and therefore, 
we need to start coordinating more strategically and not have you guys constantly sit in governments in industrial places like Baden-Württemberg and Hesse governing with some of the most decrepit parts of German conservatism. Tadjo, that, that was supposed to be a question leading to consensus again. But it was a very nice point. Yeah, they, we have clipped the left-wing part, says the spe specialist on the Green Party. Uh, for, no, seriously, we have not been in national government since 2005. So for 15 years, we have not been governing. So I don't take that point. Sorry. Okay. Um, no, but certainly, like I'm, I'm getting now all of these questions. Are you afraid of all these Fridays and whatever? And I'm just like, oh my God, no! I'm so grateful and so thankful that we have these protests and that we have all the kids in the streets and grateful that Hadjo is there and adding the sense of urgency. Exactly. Well, thank you very much. Well, I think we had a sort of consensus there. I'd like to thank our two guests for a brilliant, informative, impassioned, lively discussion. Thank you, Tadzio. Thank you, Francisca. I'd like to also thank Intelligence Square Germany and the European Council on Foreign Relations for hosting this event. I'd like to thank most of all the you, the audience, for your passion, zeal, informative questions and lovely comments. Thank you for coming. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Mm -hmm.